Oh, good morning, gang, and happy Tuesday to you. I hope that you had a, a good and refreshing weekend. And uh, I'm looking forward to today's devotion because today's devotion is going to be, well, quite a bit different than what uh, we're used to doing or what I've done here, because it's not just going to be my head talking to you about uh, the scriptures or about theology per se, but I actually have come up with a little presentation to share with you today. Uh, and the reason I come up with this presentation is because, well, I've been thinking a lot about uh, what I'd like to do going forward for our Tuesday morning devotions. And, and one of the things that I've been thinking uh, seriously about is explaining in more full detail what it is we mean when we talk about the terms law and gospel. Like, what does that mean? Uh, if you've been around these parts at all for any length of time, especially Christ Hold Fast, or maybe you're connected to us through 1517 or a conference or whatever, you listen to podcasts, you know, there's a number of ways you can catch us. You, you hear those words, law and gospel, but for maybe a good chunk of you, that's not really familiar terminology, and maybe you need it fleshed out a little bit more. At least I've, I've sort of gotten that hunch um, for the last number of, of years that I've been doing these devotions. And so I've decided today that what I'm going to do is present a little sort of overarching primer about what we mean when we use these terms law and gospel in reference to the scriptures. And I hope that through doing that, you'll at least have a framework going forward because from now on, my goal is with each passage of, of scripture that I go through, is not only to expound the text for you, to explain what it says and apply it to your life, but also to point out each and every time where it is we see the law in a text and where it is we see the gospel in a text. And we'll explain more about what that might look like in a bit here, but that's my, my goal going forward. So I'm hoping that's helpful to you. With that, with that said, uh, let's move to the presentation that I have come up with so that you don't just have to see my head throughout this whole thing. So uh, we're calling it Law and Gospel, pretty simple. And what do we mean when we use those terms? Well, let's get moving. First of all, it's also referred to um, oftentimes as God's two words. And in sort of the big idea of it is that every passage of Scripture, every word of Scripture basically can be categorized as law or gospel, that, that all of scripture can be sort of broken down into these two kinds of words, these two ways that God has chosen to communicate with his creation. Okay, well, let's dig in a little bit more. First of all, this was a long gospel really does get its sort of peak um, in understanding and in discussion during the Reformation, and specifically Martin Luther, really, really drives home this need to discern law from gospel in the text of Scripture. It, it becomes central to his thinking and central to the rest of the Reformers' thinking. Now, here's what Luther says. He says, virtually the whole of the Scriptures and the understanding of the whole of theology, the entire Christian life even, depends upon the true understanding of the law and the gospel. So you can see Luther takes this very, very seriously. It's, it, for him, it's sort of everything uh, to understand properly what it is we believe and why we believe it as Christians. And yet there is this reality 
that it's not as easy as one might expect. Even though Luther will say distinguishing between these two messages, law and the gospel, is the highest art in Christendom, because it is an art, he will also say all preachers cannot but remain mere apprentices in this art until death. So, you know, here we're talking about preachers that basically spend their lives poring over the scriptures, and Luther says they you only get so far, you're only really a mere apprentice. Well, imagine for the rest of, you know, the population that don't get to spend as much time in the scriptures, how much more fuzzy these categories might be. Thus, the reason for this brief course today. So, so Luther views it very importantly. What do we mean by the word of the law? Well, I'm going to try and keep it as simple as I possibly can. The word of the law basically are statements within scripture that are conditional statements. They are do statements. They are commands. They are things that have conditionality attached to it. So not hard to find those words, you know, especially when we think about God issuing the commands to uh, the nation of Israel, for example. Uh, you have God saying, if you do this, then I will do this for you. And, you know, on the other side of it, if you fail to do this, then you can expect this sort of punishment, or you can expect this sort of penalty. That's really at base, I mean, if we're going really broad, the words of law are, are these conditional things that ultimately, well, ultimately in one way or another, bring us condemnation. They bring judgment to us. Uh, maybe there's, you know, no better little video of what law preaching or the law sounds like than a brief video that uh, the actor Shia LaBeouf, for whatever reason, I don't exactly know why he made it, but he made a video a little while back where all he did the entire time was just yell, just do it, over and over and over again. Just do it. That is the word of the law. The word of the law screams at us from the pages of scripture. And frankly, other places is all explained in a little bit, uh, in a, just a little bit further into this, the word of the law is constantly yelling at us, just do it. Well, um, yeah, it does. And what we realize the longer we hear it is that we haven't done it. Indeed, there's a great example of this from an old skit on the uh, old television series, Mad TV. Now, no doubt no, some of you have seen it before, but I think it does a good job of encapsulating kind of how the law works. And so we're not going to watch the whole thing, but I want you to see a brief clip of it. Um, again, skip from Mad TV, really emphasizing how it is the law actually works. Uh, Dr. Switzer? Uh, yes, come in. I'm just, just washing my hands. Uh, I'm Catherine Bigman. Janet Carlisle referred me. Yes, yes, that's me. <laughs> Should I lay down? Oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that anymore. Just, just have a seat. And uh, let, let me uh, tell you a, a bit about our, our billing. I, um, I charge $5 for the, for the first five minutes. And, and then absolutely nothing after that. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> 
too good to be true, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, I can I can almost guarantee you that that our session won't last the full uh, the full five minutes. Now, um, <laughs> we don't do any insurance billing, so you would either have to pay in in cash or by check. <clears throat> wow. Okay. And I, and I I don't make change. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and go. <laughs> go. Oh, tell what? me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just I start thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic. Has has, has anyone ever ever tried to to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. <laughs> so what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes, yes, that's it. All right, well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, if, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here, you're there. Stop it! I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes! S-T-O-P, new word, I-T! So, what are you saying? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds frightening. <laughs> yes. And stop it. I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since childhood. No, no, no. We, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop. <laughs> so I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good go. Well, it's only been, it's only been three minutes, so that will be um, uh, three dollars. <laughs> I only have a five, so. Well, folks, you, uh, I'm sure you clearly get the point. You will see what happens after you, uh, after, at the end of that skit, uh, she demands that she gets a couple more minutes worth of time with uh, the, the apparent counselor there, Bob Newhart. And Bob Newhart just continues to say over and over again to her, stop it with whatever problem she brings up, whatever struggle she has, stop it, stop it, stop it. And then finally it ends with him saying to her, stop it or I'll bury you in a pine box. And that really, I mean, it's an exaggeration, it's hyperbolic, but that's, that is the way the law works. The law, it doesn't bend, it's not flexible, it is what it is. If you're commanded to do something, if there is a condition attached, then you have to do it. There's, and, and if you fail to do it, well, then you have failed to do it. 
doesn't matter the reasons why. It doesn't matter even the understandable reasons why, especially seeing that we're imperfect fallen sinners. I mean, there's going to be a lot of the time that we don't fulfill the law. We don't fulfill the demands on us, not to say, uh, not to mention that the demands that our culture has on us, that our families have on us, and that we put on ourselves. But it is to say that it is just part of life that the law is screaming out at us, demanding to us all the time, stop it, or you need to do better. Now, what kinds of law are there in scripture? Well, theologians have basically categorized them down to three kinds of law. Uh, if you look at the way the law was given to the nation of Israel, for, uh, per se, you have two that are very specific to them. You have both the civil law and the ceremonial law. Now, the civil law was, of course, those laws that basically helped keep society running in ancient Israel, especially as they're a nomadic tribe. The civil law tells you, you know, if somebody tries to take one of your goats, then, you know, they owe you this much or you are entitled to this. It's, it's civilization. A uh, second kind of law that you see is ceremonial law, which tells the nation of Israel how they ought to worship, what they need to sacrifice for whatever sins they, that are committed. There's a lot of detail about that, especially when you get to the book of Leviticus and you find out all the ways they're supposed to worship God in truth. And then there's the moral law, and that is you know, the, what most specifically found in the Ten Commandments, but not only found there. Uh, those moral laws are the things that basically have been agreed upon throughout most human societies to one degree or another. If not all of the Ten Commands, especially the first three that are pretty specific to God's people there, the rest of them have generally been seen as, yeah, good things to live by. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, etc. That kind of stuff has been, it's the moral law. It tells us how we ought to conduct ourselves in an ethical manner. Now, how does the law function? So I've just described you what kinds of law there are in scripture. Now, how does the law function? Well, it basically has been said to function in three ways uh, in, uh, by theologians over time. Uh, and these three ways are described as, uh, first of all, curbing sinners. Now, what do we mean by curbing? Well, if you think about curbs on the side of the road, you know, they sort of, they, they give you guardrails. They keep the cars from going off-road and running into people's property or driving into people's property. The most clear example of the curbing use of the law is if you're driving on the interstate and you're going above the speed limit, and then you happen to see a police officer coming up on the side of the road, you know, a, a, let's say uh, a thousand yards away. Well, the curbing use of the law, the natural thing that will happen to you if you notice you're going over the speed limit because you don't want a ticket is you're going to try and slow down so that you don't get the ticket. I'm guilty. You are too. We've all done it. That's the curbing use of the law. It's curbing us from being as bad as human beings might naturally be prone to being. Uh, one uh, stand-up comedian a few years ago uh, acknowledged, and I think quite articulately, if there was no law against murder, there'd be an, a whole heck of a lot more murder. But because there is a law there that basically threatens us with punishment if we commit this act, it curbs us from doing it, even if we might have moments where we feel like we want to kill somebody for being you know, mean to us or mean to our family or whatnot. You get the idea. The second use of the law, and what Luther would call, and the Lutheran Church throughout all of 
uh, its history would call the primary use of the law is the, the crucifying use of the law or the crucifying function, the killing function. And what this means is, is the law, what it, what it does when it hits the human being is it accuses us. And through its accusation of us, it brings an end to our justifications, to our rationalizations for why we do what we do. It doesn't allow us that. We, we can come up with anything that we want and the law is just gonna keep on saying, you shall not, or you have done this. And so when the law is preached, one of the functions it has is it brings us to an end of ourselves. It shows us that we are not capable of saving ourselves by fulfilling said law because we haven't done it. And then thirdly, uh, the, law, the law functions in some manner as something like a coach. In other words, the law is a guide to show us how we should live on behalf of our neighbor, how we should treat our neighbor. And again, this gets to sort of those Ten Commandments. You know, it's we shouldn't lie. It's a, it's a terrible use of freedom to lie. It's a terrible use of freedom to kill. It's a terrible use of freedom to commit adultery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there is this function in which it, it, it gives us some sort of guide for how we ought to live. Now, I will uh, mention that there is some debate about how much distinction there is between the curbing use and this coaching use. Uh, some will emphasize that the coaching use is primarily only for Christians because this is for the renewed Christian mind or for the, the man that has the new man, so to speak, that is filled with the spirit. Others will say, well, yeah, okay, that's true, that there's some truth there, but also the, the first use is curbing the old man that still exists in the Christian because we are both at one and the same time simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously saint and sinner. And from that perspective, what, what that person would say is that the law's function is to, to basically kill, continually kill the old man. That's what it's doing in our lives so that the new man freely goes out and does what God would have us do for the good of our neighbor. Some of this is semantics and it's a little deeper than really we need to go here today, but the rest assured, that's the way the law actually functions in, in people's lives. Now it is important to note that the Apology to the Augsburg Confession uh, says that the law, no matter how it's functioning, always does accuse. In other words, when we hear the law, no matter how it is preached, no matter how it is read, there's always a part of it that does let us know where we're falling short. It does always accuse us uh, in that sense. Now, let's move on from how the law functions to where the law is revealed. Well, it's revealed in nature, as Romans 1, 18 through 23 clearly says. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you look in that passage, we're told that people, all people naturally sort of know that there's a divine power, that there's this divinity that they're kind of held accountable to. So just by nature of being born, every person intuitively has this sense that there is a God above them, but naturally also doesn't like it, rebels against that God. And he'll go on in the rest of Romans 1 to explain why that is and what that looks like. The second place that the law is revealed, according to the scriptures in Romans 2, is our nature, or, or excuse me, our hearts. Uh, we're told that the law is, has been written on our hearts. 
And, and the way that we see this probably most naturally in our lives is we think about our conscience and our conscience guiding us uh, almost intuitively again to give us a sense of what we ought to do and what we ought not to, uh, what we shouldn't do. That's the idea. They, so it's not just out there looking at the world and deducing that there's a God uh, that we are held accountable to, but it's also there's something in our hearts naturally that knows the good we ought to do, but pushes against it or runs from it naturally. And then, of course, thirdly, the Bible reveals also the law to us in uh, all sorts of dramatic ways throughout all of its pages. So, so that's where the law is revealed. It is the most natural thing for us to look to because it is all around us. Now, let's turn to the word of the gospel. Okay, so we've explained in broad detail what we mean when we say law. Now let's go to the word of the gospel. Well, what we mean when we say gospel, primarily because the word gospel literally means in its original language, good news, is that it is a declaration of good news. And this good news is contrary to the law, unconditional for us. It is a declaration of something done for us. It is good news. Now, maybe the, the easiest way to think about good news is to think about, indeed, something like good news, the idea of a war coming to an end, and it's just simply declared to you. You open the paper and a declaration is made, victory. That's the, that's the gospel. The gospel does not come telling you what you must do. The gospel tells you what has been done for you. Now, that's very important. Let's go on. What does the gospel do in a person's life? Well, we're told in the scriptures it has the power to regenerate people dead in trespasses and sins, to bring to life people that are naturally dead in trespasses and sins, that are lacking faith entirely. It creates that faith, in fact, by the hearing of the word of God, and in fact, the gospel, not the law, the gospel is what creates good works in the person's life. It is indeed the freedom of the gospel that causes one to act in faith, which is the root of good works on behalf of our neighbor. Now, again, because this is a very broad overview, I'm not going to go into much better, much greater detail than that. But one of um, supposedly a little poem attributed to John Bunyan sort of uh, explains it well, where he says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The law is not. It's the gospel. Now, how is the gospel revealed? Well, as the word of God is preached, and that gospel is declared, it tells us that it comes by grace alone, by God's sheer grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that this is all gifted to us. 1,000% gift. If anybody talks about, quote, the gospel, and does not talk about it in terms of sheer gift, my friends, they have got it wrong. 
Gospel always is gift. It's the gift of a promise made from the very beginning to Adam and Eve in the garden that is fulfilled in Christ on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins. It's gift, pure gift. Lucas Cronach, maybe the chief painter of the Reformation period, has a wonderful painting depicting the difference between law and gospel. It's one of my favorite paintings. If I could, I'd get my hands on one and put it in my office because I think it's so, it does such a great job of pointing us to the distinctions between these words. On the left-hand side of the screen, I think it's the left, your left-hand side, I'm not quite sure, you'll see his depiction of the preaching of the law. It, what is it? Well, you've got, uh, you've got death prodding somebody, prodding a person. The person is running away, trying to flee. But where are they fleeing to? They're fleeing into flames. There's nowhere for them to go. You've got the preachers here on the right hand side or just off to the side that are pointing to the law. It's very clear what Cronach is saying is that this is what the law preaching does. What is the reason that the law came? Well, you look behind the man and you see Adam and Eve eating of the fruit. And what does this cause? Look behind them in the background. You've got that scene with the bronze serpent where all of the children of Israel, or not all, but a good chunk of them, uh, died because of sin. And thus, this makes God very distant and far from us. When the law is the primary message without the gospel, God is seen as nothing but a severe judge that basically has, is just looking forward to the day of wrath where he can take out his vengeance upon you. Oh, but look at the right side of the screen here, the right side of the painting, and it changes dramatically. When the gospel is preached, it is not pointing to the law, but it is pointing to Christ crucified as this John the Baptist character is doing to the same man who was fleeing in the picture before. And what does Christ crucified do? Well, if you look right beneath his cross, he's the Lamb of God who is trampling over the devil and his army. Notice that it's this, this little lamb here, but that is, that is winning the battle. And what does that do? Notice how close Jesus Christ is to the sinner now right there in fellowship with the sinner is Christ Jesus. And what awaits that person is not a city where death reigns like the nation of Israel had with the, the serpent issue, but indeed what awaits them is the heavenly city that we all long for. So that is law and gospel. That's God's two words. Now let's look at the need, the need for law and gospel distinction. Most evangelical preaching today is exegetical. I mean, not all of it, but a lot of evangelical preaching is exegetical. It's seeking to explain to you what the text of Scripture says. Uh, oftentimes, it's topical. So you can go to churches in which it's going to be five steps to better your marriage, five steps to a healthy life, you know, etc. You know what I'm talking about. It's going to tend to be very practical. It's going to try and give somebody something to take with them to work on Monday morning, as I have heard from various parishioners throughout my ministry. Uh, and it's almost always, without exception, abundantly filled with law words. It is. I, I, I wish it wasn't the case, but a tremendous amount of preaching that is out there in the world today, if you really look at it, is primarily what you should be doing. 
Now, there's two kinds of way that this kinds of ways that these sermons are delivered, or that this this law is delivered. One is what I call heavy law, and that's the law that we, that's the kind of preaching we sort of associate with uh, real heavy law preaching, ranting about the moral decay of the country, filled with warnings to make sure that you're really saved. Uh, frankly, I mean, dudes sound angry a lot of the time. That's kind of the heavy law preaching that you come across. What's more insidious, because I think we know how to spot that, and we sort of have rejected that nowadays for the most part, what's more insidious is what I call light law preaching or, or soft law. And this law comes with a smile. It comes friendly. It says, you can do it. It, it, it looks in the mirror on your behalf and says, you know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me just like Stuart Smalley back in the old Saturday Night Live skit. It, it tells you if you just believe enough, miracles can happen like you can't imagine. It's soft-spoken, filled with so, so many smiles. And yet, folks, it is just as much law preaching, because in the final analysis, what it's pointing you to is what you ought to be doing and what you miss out on, the blessings that you'll miss out on if you fail to do it. So either way, whether the threat is eternal hell or whether the threat is, well, your life's just not gonna be as good as it could be, it's all law preaching. And it is very much dominant in American culture. What's the result of law only preaching? Well. It can be pride. I mean, people can can hear the law and sort of get up on their high horse and like, yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, people need to join me in the moral crusade. But, you know, eventually, eventually people, people have to get honest with themselves or at least, you know, they'll have cognitive dissonance because if if they're really hearing the law for what it says, it eventually will lead to despair, uh, burnout, they'll grow tired. And frankly, sometimes, oftentimes, depending on how heavy the law is preached, it will lead to bitterness and folks will leave the church in, they're just, they, they get to a point, and I've seen this, I, I can't tell you how many times as a preacher over my 13 and a half years of ministry, I can't tell you how many times people have come into my churches and said, I am this close from leaving it all. I have nothing left. I've tried everything. I am exhausted. And I don't care if I go to hell because of it. I'm done. That's what legalistic law-only preaching leads to. It, it, you have nothing left. It takes out all the reserves in your tank. Now, who is Jesus in law-only preaching? Because oftentimes Jesus does get a primary role. It's not that they stop talking about him, but they talk about him, well, I think in, in a few different ways. They talk about him primarily as your example, as a person that you're to emulate as being the perfect man. Uh, they talk about him as he's the one who gets you into heaven, but you're the one who keeps yourself into heaven. Even if their statement of faith would say otherwise, or their confession would say otherwise, the preaching tends to lead people to believe that, that Jesus got me in at the altar call, or let's say even at my baptism. But if I don't do this, 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 and this enough, then I might not be able to stay in the salvation game. In other words, he's your friend as long, as long, Hear that conditionality, 
as you're obedient enough. If you want a dead giveaway for law preaching, that word enough is all over the place, folks. Enough, 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 enough. And that's not just in the scriptures, that's in our culture. Enoughness is the key to understanding the, the sort of voice of the law. Now, there is, as I acknowledge there's law-only preaching, there is the possibility of, of sort of gospel-only preaching, too. That does happen. It is not nearly as common as law-only, but it is a thing. Uh, and it sort of sounds like God loves you just the way you are. You know, hey, nobody's perfect. And it's sort of, you know, it basically just, um, it minimizes, minimizes the problem with the human condition. Again, this is, a, this is a pretty rare thing that I hear in at least uh, traditional sort of uh, orthodox churches, but it is there. And the result of that preaching is that it can lead to licentiousness and complacency that we don't seek to do things on, on behalf of our neighbor because it's like, eh, whatever, you know, I'm good to go. But that's not really what, that's why we need both law and gospel preaching. We need both things. We need to discern both words in scripture. It can't be one or the other only. So what's the challenge we face when we talk about law and gospel? In other words, why is law and gospel teaching and frankly interpretation not more common? Well, as Luther does call it, it is a fine art. It's something that, that we only begin to start discerning and being good at doing after lots and lots of practice. And so after the session, don't be too hard on yourself if it doesn't come through immediately. It takes time, and that's okay. Also, we ought to know that everything in our nature is sort of prone to fighting against uh, honing this fine art. The law is the default position of every fallen human being. In other words, every fallen human being wants to be told, what do I need to do, and how can I do it? And they want to do that for salvation. Thus, every other religious system on planet Earth. It's a set of codes. It's a set of rules. Do this and you will live. That's our nature. Recognize, folks, all this takes time to process. Uh, recommendations as you come to a text. So this is brass tacks, like you're actually reading the scriptures. Here's something that I found helpful for an, from an author named Brian Chapel. Now, I'm not going to re recommend his book to you, Christ-Centered Preaching, because it really is sort of like a seminary, it's basically like a seminary uh, course outline, It's and it's kind of read, written that way, and so it's not particularly accessible, but, but he does have something that I find helpful that I think we can all do. He says when you come to a text that we ought to, uh, first of all, find what he calls the fallen condition focus. And what he means by that is, what problem or problems do we come across in a text that wouldn't be there if we were in paradise, if we were in the new heavens and new earth? That's a, that's a really good way to think about it. Um, and, and he asks, can the problem that we're seeing here be universalized to all people? Is it something that everybody has to deal with? So for example, if you come across a text in scripture in which someone dies, well, that's a problem that all of us deal with. That is a result of being fallen and being in a fallen place is that all of us will die. Death is sort of the ultimate example of the law, of the law doing its finished work. And he, and he makes sure to note that, that um, 
it doesn't have to be sin necessarily for you to find the law. It just has to be anything that uh, it just has to be anything that shows us our fallenness or the results of our fallenness. And then the question to ask is, what solution does Scripture have God doing to fix the problem? Not you doing, but what solution does the Scriptures have God doing to fix the problem? And probably most often it's going to be God doing in the person of Jesus Christ to fix the problem. What does Scripture offer as the solution? I will give you a hint. There always is a solution found in Jesus Christ to every problem we see in the scriptures. So let's do a little practice. Let's make it real practical. We'll start off very simple. A very famous verse, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that's just one verse, but ask yourself where you see the law in the passage and where you see the gospel. Well, I think it's, it's probably pretty evident to most of you watching this. The wages of sin is death. Literally, the wages, what you've earned. It's a conditional statement. The wages of sin is death. That's law. That is the law on blast. What's the gospel? Remember I talked about that gift language? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice, no wages, no conditionality. Free gift. That's gospel. Let's go to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, a little longer passage, but also one that's very clearly demarcated for us as we'll read. You'll, you'll kind of see it. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses in sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, did you notice where the law was and where the gospel was? Again, this is a passage that kind of really demarcates it out for us pretty, pretty well. Most passages of scripture will not be this clear and it will take a little bit more hunting and hopefully over the next number of weeks, I'll be able to help you start doing that. But if you look at the first three verses here, that's all law. I mean, and it's about as law as it gets. I mean, we were sons of disobedience. We were just, it's basically saying we're sons of the devil. We're sons and daughters of the devil and doing everything, carrying out all the passions that our flesh would throw at us. And we're worthy of hell. Whoa. But then you get to verse four. 
And from that moment on, it's gospel, gospel, gospel. And how does it begin? But God. First three verses, the actor is you. Last six verses, the actor is God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, raised us to new life in Christ. You've done it. Law and gospel. Are you seeing the two words and how they interact in scripture? So what can we expect the effect to be as we dive more into law and gospel distinguishing and discerning as we come to scripture? Well, I think we can expect this. We can expect to come, even maybe now you're having it, you can expect to hear something like, I've never heard this before. I've heard it my entire ministry life. And that goes back to what I was saying. It's not preached. It's not taught nearly often enough. And so people don't, people are sort of, they have their whole paradigm shifted as they begin to look at scripture in the light of these two words. And especially if someone comes from a legalistic background, which I don't know the backgrounds of, of all of you who are watching this or will watch this, uh, this will really be revolutionary to your way of thinking about everything. And that means you can expect pushback both internally for yourself and externally. I mean, the question comes, as it did for Paul in Romans 6, if Jesus really paid it all, I can just go on sinning that grace may abound? Is that what you're saying? Well, of course, that's not what we're saying, as Paul will go on to say in that same chapter in Romans 6. But that's the natural question that comes when law and gospel has been preached in its purity. When you've seen law and gospel in the scriptures, the natural thing is to go, wow, this just is, is it really giving me that much freedom? What am I supposed to do with that freedom? Expect lots of questions for clarification about that freedom from within and from those around you. It leads, though, to great freedom. Of course, because the law, when it's preached in all its fullness, will lead people to despair over their sin. Good, true, but only good if we give them the salve, the delivery of the gospel that declares no matter what they've done, no matter how bad they've been, Christ Jesus has absorbed their sin upon himself at his cross and declares them 100% forgiven and imputed entirely with his righteousness forever. And that means many will feel a sense of profound liberation that they've never experienced anywhere before. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. And you might expect the question to come up within you and outside of you. Since I don't have to do anything, what should I do? And, and that's a great question because that shows that the gospel is indeed doing its work. It's creating a desire to serve and obey. And so now we, our, our, our focus as long gospel is preached, is taken from looking to God to try and figure out what we need to do to stay in his good graces, and God sort of takes our head and focuses it back on our neighbor and says, well, they need you. Go change your kid's diaper. Like, go, go be a great employee for your boss. Like, go do some, go, go help out at your church's potluck or whatever it is. Like, 
now we're free to serve our neighbors. That's long gospel preaching frees us up to not have to be thinking about ourselves so much, to get our, our, no, our eyes off our own belly button and actually focus on our neighbor. So that is a brief, brief, brief overview of law and gospel and what we mean by it. Here's some book recommendations if you'd like to dig a little further into it. Of course, the, the sort of classic is C.F.W. Walther's Law and Gospel. Uh, you can find that, I believe, on Amazon. It's, it's, uh, there's, I think there's even more updated copies of it. If you're looking for a more accessible version of Walther's um, Law and Gospel, I can't recommend John Pless's Handling the Word of Truth highly enough. It is an excellent uh, breakdown of what it means to see law and gospel in the scriptures, and especially for preachers to preach law and gospel. And then a great little primer on law and gospel is put out by Mockingbird, our friends and partners in the ministry that we do so much with. Uh, and it is just called Law and Gospel, which you can get on Amazon as well. I recommend all those, and I hope uh, that they would be helpful to you. So, all right, where do we go from here? Well, next week, we are going to be uh, looking at law and gospel, we're going to be, well, we're going to be looking at some specific texts of scripture, and each week I'm going to show uh, and tell you how indeed uh, these texts of scripture um, uh, are broken down and how we find both law and gospel in each of them. So I hope that's been an encouragement to you. I hope it's a blessing to you. Feel free to share it if you think this would be helpful to other people, and uh, we'll see you next Tuesday for our law and gospel devotional. God bless.